Last week we began, let's call it an in-between series, an application series from Luke 10 as we were drifting off to sleep last night. Lynn articulated what probably a lot of you are thinking. She said, now, why are we in Luke 10 again? I thought we were in Romans. Because we need to apply all that instruction. You know, one of the, one of the downsides to going straight through a book like Romans is you don't get to any application until chapter 12. You realize that. And so you can spend all these months, your head getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and your hands getting smaller and smaller and smaller because you're not applying. And so what I want to do as we go through Romans is just take these three, four-week little jaunts through something else that helps us to take what we've covered, in this case, Romans 1 through 3, the first three months of the year, and um, what do we do with it? And when you've spent three months looking at human sinfulness, uh, you've got to move to the remedy. You've got to go to the gospel. A message, which we tried to establish last week and again today, a message that goes to us as much as it goes to the world. We began to talk about things from this angle last week. And so we're in Luke 10 for April because what we have in Luke 10 is a microcosm of the church on mission with a message, a message that speaks to the, the fact of human sinfulness and all its unrighteous and self-righteous expression both, and witness to the fact of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that being God's response to the broken reality of sin. Uh, we are sent into the world by Jesus to witness. That's the old word. Uh, But witness involves observation as well as communication. It does. You have to know. You have to see. You don't just know the message. We're not 90-day wonders out there knocking on doors. We, We observe. We see what's going on around us. Not to tailor the message. The message is what it is. But to know who we're talking to and what are their, what are they dealing with? So the, 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 the witness that Jesus sends us the church into the world for involves observation as well as communication. It's, it's not just about telling. It's also about listening. But we're looking at the telling part. And Luke 10 is where we are. And the telling part, you know, if somebody tries to make you feel guilty about the telling part, the telling part can be a downer. So I didn't get up here last week and say, I want to take you through an evangelism series. Because all the extroverts in the room are like, yay, finally. And all the introverts are like, oh, no. (laughs) You're going to guilt me into talking to people. I don't even like talking to people I know, much less talking to people I don't know. Why are you doing this to me? Well, I understand that. I'm introverted, too. And evangelism is something of a spiritual discipline, really, for the introverts that you give yourself to. But it's the appropriate focus for us after spending all that time, those three months of the first of the year here, in in looking at sin, the human plight in sin, we all need to do something about that. And we've been given by God and sent by Jesus something to do. And even if it comes easy to you, engaging people with the gospel, the times we're in make that difficult for reasons I began to articulate last week. But it's through the gospel spoken. It's a spoken message, and it's through the spoken word of God 
in the ears of people who are made in the image and likeness of God, no matter how far flung they've gone in sin, the image and God, the image and likeness of God is still there. It's, it's the way God meets people through the spoken word. It's the way he liberates. It's the way he heals people. They have to hear the message. They do. Uh, Romans 10 will tell us this when we get to Romans 10. And here in Luke 10, this is demonstrated. And what I love about Luke 10 is, again, last week, if all you had was Luke 9, if all you had was nine chapters in Luke and he sends the 12 out in Luke 9, then you would think the messaging, that's for the clergy. That's for the professionals. That's for the trained. But the 72 going out means this is for everybody. Sends the 12 out in Luke 9. He sends the 72 out. God puts us out there in Luke 10 with all our flaws and all our faults and all our hang-ups and all our blind spots. What an, what an ineffectual way this would seem to be. What an inefficient way this would seem to be. God, what do you have in mind? Well, I think the reason he sends us out, there's many reasons, but one predominant reason is the way he gets the gospel into his own people is by sending us out to others. He does his work of confronting and challenging sin through us. But also, he passes along his compassion to sinners through we who are the chief among them. But we need the right motivation. And that's what we want to talk about today. Last week we talked about the message, its mission. Today we want to talk about the motivation because if we don't have the right motivation for our telling, a lot starts to go awry. And to the motivation we come, these 72 that we met last week in Luke 10, they were as we are. They were gospel speakers. They weren't the inner core of the 12 disciples. They were everybody else following Jesus. They're sent out with a message. They're messengers. The gospel is something spoken. Why God created the world and broke into it as he did in the person of his son and the eternal relevance of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the, and the promise of his return that we live in light of now. Who is God in his perfections? Who are people in his image and likeness but in rebellion against him? This is all part of the message. This is our messaging. And so again, last week we looked at the message or the mission of our messaging. Last week was the mission of our messaging. Today with these same verses before us, I want us to consider the motivation. We read the whole text just to get the the whole picture But I want us to focus today on the return of the 72 to Jesus. When they come back from the gospel errand they were sent on, the 72 again is a preview of the church in the world. What do they say to him when they come back? And what does he say to them and to us as well listening over their shoulders? Because they are back then a preview of us Now, same message, same sending by God. It's always been God's way. He calls you to himself to send you out. He calls you to himself and he says, what, you're still here? You in your little Bible study, get out, move. Go tell somebody else about this, engage. So they do this and they come back. Verse 17 is where we'll pick it up again. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Don't miss the with joy. See that in verse 17? 
with joy, this, this radiance that, that feels like a, you're being seized in your emotions. Oh, they say, what kind of power have you brought us in on, Lord? We are blown away by what we were able to affect invoking your name. And how does Jesus reply? In verse 18, he says, in effect, Satan's fall is infinite. Verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which is a claim to preexistence, which means it's a delusional thing for Jesus to say this unless the preexistence of the Son of God is actual history. Satan was the first creature to rebel. Here he's mentioned in verse 18. He had an angelic following. This isn't mentioned, but it's implied with uh, the demons. Demon is just a word for a fallen angel. And Jesus says, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven in a flash, like lightning, the definitive act of God with no hesitation, no regret, like lightning striking when Satan usurped his position, moved into a role that was not his. He was gone. Well, these 72 have experienced Jesus' power over powerful ancient beings, fallen angels, and they liked it. It stoked them. They liked seeing enslaved people liberated. They liked seeing broken people made whole. They liked seeing unbelieving people, the, the, the unbelief displaced by belief, and all of it due to Jesus. In the words of the immortal Tim McGraw, they liked it, they loved it, and they want some more of it. That is from the 1995 All I Want album, which in my estimation is a classic of hillbilly rock. All they want, these 72 that we meet in Luke 10, they want to get back out there and they want to see more of the same. And Jesus tells them, verse 19, behold, I've given you authority I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the, the power, all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Authority, key word here. Satan and his realm have power, but they don't really have authority. Yes, they're called in Scripture the authorities and the powers over this present darkness. They don't really have authority. The difference is, as one writer put it, you can steal power, but not authority, Authority goes deeper and further than mere power. And so he says, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you, which is not a statement of invincibility. It's a statement of outcome. The text about our life is hidden with Christ and or hidden with God in Christ. The body they may kill as an old hymn put it, in fact, it was the hymn we sang yesterday at, at, uh, at Bill Borland's memorial service. In fact, these are, these are Bill Borland's azaleas right here. Do you know that? He grew these. Uh, the body they may kill. We sang a mighty fortress yesterday in this room. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I give you a mighty fortress, and I like it. I love it in the same sermon. Right? Tim McGraw and Martin Luther. We're intergenerational in our worship, you know. Verse 19, what I'm simply trying to say to you, is not a license to be reckless. 
That's not what verse 19 is giving us. It's an encouragement to be bold. To move into the harvest. Think about verse 2, the harvest. What is a harvest? It's a field. What's in field? Snakes. They're there. Scorpions in some parts of the world where this was spoken, certainly. Don't fear the snakes and the scorpions in the ripe fields. You don't have to go tempting them. You don't have to go poking them with sticks when you find them. But don't fear them. And yet, Jesus says, even so, nevertheless, verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, in this authority that I've given you, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. When we get to see the power of God transform people, when we get to see and experience in real time the stuff of redemption, when we get to be in on the harvesting, verse 2 again, the harvest is plentiful, labors are few, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. When we don't just pray this, but we become the answer ourselves, move into the work. When we get to see life change in Christ, it is intoxicating. This kind of joy that combusts in the heart and the marrow of who we are in Christ. We cannot get enough of this when it works. That's where these 72 were, the endorphin high of good ministry. And keep in mind in the surrounding context, as Lisa read it to us, they've gone to hard places. They weren't, this wasn't a cupcake mission. We read it. Instruction there in verses 10 through 12 on what to do when you're not received, when the mission fails, as it were, though it never really fails. When people say no thanks to you or they say worse to you than just no thanks. But the 72, what had been their experience? They had enough success. They had enough taste of Jesus' power over evil and over everything that enslaves people to know They wanted more. And what does Jesus say to them? That's all well and good until it becomes your motivation. Until that becomes the, until the performance side, the results is what you lead with, is what you're in it for. See what, he says, don't, you know, don't, don't rejoice in this, the spirit's subject to you. You go, well, what's wrong with results? Nothing is wrong with results, but we can so seamlessly shift from being people who are excited just to be in on it, excited just to be helping and seeing fruit to excitement that, look at us, dark powers give way when we're around. Whoa. So, so easy to tie your self-image up in your performance. And what Jesus says here in verse 20 has implications for this. Don't rejoice in this. The spirits are subject to you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You know, I think as many times as I've read the Gospel of Luke, I've missed that for a long time. If I was going to get a tattoo, you know what I would get? I would get this line at the end of verse 20 in Greek. Not saying go do that. But if I did, that's what I would do. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What a thought. We need to just be in awe of that a little bit. See, when you're, when you're doing for God, and we all do, 
When you're conscientious of being a Christian in this world and you're, you're, you're with somebody and, and they're a believer or not believer and, and God is on the radar and you're thinking about him and you're talking about him and, and, and your love for him is, is, is coming out. When you're doing for God motivation is more about what you're doing for God than what God has done for you in Christ, then you'll have to see results. Then you will um, not tolerate rejection and you might get reckless and you might get superior and be really hard on people who reject you or are otherwise in your way. If your motor needs the higher octane of performance for God, more than his performance for you, take care. This is why everyone who succeeds in really anything, but if you succeed for God, you know, we naturally think about it in a ministry context, but everyone who succeeds, especially in ministry, needs to get a little scared of themselves. There's a lot to do, and there's a lot to get done while we're here. That's the point of the 72. They are sent out into towns and places and homes. They are sent to people there in those places in need of Jesus. Some of them would receive, some of them would not. And, and we're in need of him too. That's also the point here. Don't miss it. But there is a harvest to move into. And yet, as you move in, check your motivations. It's good that demons are subject to the name of Jesus it's, it's good when we see results. It's bad when that becomes the way you derive your sense of value to God. When that is, is what your joy is plugged into, the results. I was just uh, recently, uh, a friend on a mission trip was texting me the count of the number of the people who prayed to receive Christ where his team is ministering. And, and it's, it's always funny when you get a text like that in a passage like this one. Because I wanted to text back, well, you know, Jesus says, uh, rejoice not in the number, the count. But that'd be kind of a jerky thing to do, you know, in that context. And so I didn't do that. And yet the best of us, We're always in need of hearing this from Jesus, especially God's high achievers. The people who who see our work mean something to people. You know, see, I get to be a professional Christian, right? So people are are, are, are assessing me based on my value to the church. I I get it. I know that's how it, it works. But when you... When you see it register, when you see your work leave an imprint, make an impact, when you, when you know that you're appreciated, motivations are never entirely pure. It's an alloy. Your motivation is an alloy. Motives are always multiple and frequently mixed. It's an axiom of life that I, I live with. And don't beat yourself up about that. That's just how it is. You'll waste a lot of energy trying to purify your motives and you'll get morbid in introspection the more you do that and you'll frustrate yourself right out of speaking and serving in Jesus' name. You will. But that said, we do need to keep our motives in check. 
The why we're doing what we're doing. Not just the what we're doing or the how we're doing it, but the why. See, there's always something of us mixed in. It's unavoidable. I mean, God sends us. You ever had the experience of complimenting somebody and they say, well, it wasn't me, it was all God. And you appreciate that, but you want to go, yeah, but it was, if I'm pretty sure it was you. I mean, it was your voice, it was your activity. I, I appreciate that you're giving praise and glory to God, but can I not thank you? There's always something of us mixed in. It's unavoidable. It's here in Luke 10. That's why Jesus is having this conversation with the 72 in their success. For followers of the Lord Jesus, the accent, Jesus is saying, the accent is on my greater success on your behalf. That's the cornerstone of our value to God. It's where we anchor our self-image, not our performance for him. Though we are encouraged and sent out to perform, to do, to work, to harvest. But where we, where we set our value to God is in his performance for us. That's what verse 20 is teaching us. That's our great takeaway. Since this is fresh on my mind, a couple weeks ago, I got to moderate a panel at the MLK 50 conference that was here. Sandy Wilson was supposed to moderate this panel. He called me a day before, asked me to substitute. Uh, he had a conflict. And um, while I knew my panel, the, the Memphis pastors on my panel, I've, I've all met, I've met them, I know them. The organizers of the conference didn't really know me. I was the only substitute on the, on the agenda for the, the two days, and, and, and nor did the mass of people in the convention center. And I, I thought I'd be cute at first. I didn't do this, but I thought it, it would be, it'd be fun to introduce myself like saying something to the effect of, uh, they wanted Billy Graham, but he's with the Lord. Uh, Tim Keller is unavoidable, or is uh, unavailable. Uh, and uh, Sandy Wilson has called in sick. Hi, I'm Cole Huffman. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't do that. I don't seek being up front like that. And, I, and when Sandy asked me to sub, it was actually his wife, Allison, who, who was sick, and he needed to be with her. I knew I couldn't lie to him. You know, I was going to the conference, and, and that was his question, and I couldn't say I wasn't. And so... Though it's very nerve-wracking for me to do that or be on TV or any of those things, I, I, when I'm asked, I'll, I'll go. And so I did in his place. Well, guess what? When I got to the convention center, I was treated like a dignitary. I was a big-time guy. I'd planned to go as an attendee. I was going to wear a T-shirt and jeans, be comfortable. Instead, I'm, I'm now a moderator of a panel at a national evangelical conference with 4,000 in attendance and thousands more watching online. I'm in my best suit. Everybody got a name tag on a lanyard. But in addition, I had a name tag in front of my name tag, and it said VIP. <laughs> and the VIP tag got me anywhere I wanted to go in the convention center. Police gave way. We had heavy security at this thing. Show them the VIP. Yes, sir. They took me back to the green room behind the stage where there were chocolates and furniture and a big screen TV where you could watch the person who's now behind you on the stage. You could watch them and sit around and talk and, hey, how are you? How are you? And 
When I was done with the panel and I got out to my seat with our staff, it occurred to me, I looked down and I saw the VIP tag and I took it off and I put it in my coat pocket until the next night when I needed it for a a more minor role. And I'm not telling you this because this is not some kind of virtue signaling. I'm telling you this because I have learned not to trust myself, not to walk around that conference for the rest of the day wearing my big VIP tag and getting access to all the the behind the scenes places and people. And, And I've been learning not to trust myself since becoming pastor here. Because, you know, I've just learned to be wary of the praise and the privileges, to appreciate them, but not not derive your sense of worth from them. And this is not because our faith is about self-hatred. I mean, some of you, bless your hearts, what you grew up in, uh, you you think that Christian self-denial equates to self-hatred, and it doesn't. That's not where Jesus takes us. Jesus never takes us to spiting ourselves, but he does take us to suspicioning ourselves. I didn't want to walk around with VIP dangling around my neck, my once red neck, because I'm not a VIP. I was a moderator fill-in. And lest I think I did, you know, great, coming around the, the, the green room, I, I learned, I, I'm not a conference um, I, I'm not a conference goer, so I, I don't know how this is, but there's always these folks at these conferences that have an agenda. And they try to corner the, the speakers and the presenters. And so I come around the corner, these two guys with matching T-shirts, they start giving me all their literature. And they're telling me what they're about. And, 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 um, and, they, and the one guy says, uh, weren't, weren't you just, weren't you just on, the, on the panel there? And I said, yeah, moderated it for a friend. And so they're trying to convince me. And they said, well, well can you get us back there to any of the speakers? I said, I, you know, I don't think I can do that. Um, and, and then the one guy goes, so what's your name? And I told him, and, and they looked at each other and they said, you weren't on the list of, of speakers and presenters. And, and, and it was over. <laughs> I mean, they moved on with bigger fish to fry, you know. Bless my heart. This passage is telling us the VIP that matters everybody in the kingdom gets. The most important thing about us is what Jesus thinks about us. The most important thing done for us is what Jesus has done for us. And some of us have to preach this to ourselves over and over and over again. And not just when we're failing, but also when we're succeeding. When everything's going well and right, that the most important thing about us is what he's done for us in his justifying grace and love. The most important thing, as Jesus says it here, is having your name embossed, written in heaven. I preach this to myself because I know I have mixed motivations, but as much as it depends on me, I want my motivation to have Christ in the center. This wording here in verse 20 about names written, back in ancient times, the only people who had their names written on anything were noblemen with much pomp and circumstance. And so you know what Jesus putting it this way? You know what he's telling his followers? He's dignifying us. He's dignifying us. We of all people, he's dignifying all 72, all of his people, whether you get to be the keynoter in this life or the fill-in panel moderator or the most out-of-the-way volunteer in his work, the most significant thing about us is not what we do for God, but what God has done for us in Christ. That is where you set your joy. 
Because see, if we forget this or we get it turned around, then we're ripe for committing the same kind of pride that caused Satan's fall. It's pride that goes before a fall. Without the right motivation, that anything we accomplish becomes, comes because of what he's accomplished for us and, and his lending us his power, without this fix, the message can actually be destructive in our hands. And, and the church has a history of message destructiveness, unfortunately, where we've taken the authority, verse 19, given to us and used it to build our own kingdoms. I heard it said once, and this is as beautiful as it is true, that faith belongs among those terms that first need to be healed itself before it can be used to heal someone else. Faith belongs among those terms that need healing itself before it can be used as an agent for healing others. I've been thinking on that a lot where we find ourselves today as a church messaging to people around us what it means to put faith in Jesus. We have success in this, but we also have resistance. As Jesus said, here we would. Sometimes the resistance we encounter is hangover from destructive things done in the name of Jesus that lacked his signature. Things done by his people, but not his way. People will bring up the crusades, of course. They'll bring up the inquisitions. They'll bring up the slave trade and, and how some Christians, prominent Christians, tried to justify that by, well, we're bringing, we're bringing the Africans to a country where they can hear the gospel. Isn't that good? Even the temperance movement created backlash against the church because forced prohibition, those who set about that, were trying so hard to do something in Jesus' name, but it wasn't Jesus' way. Now let me hasten here, there was Christians who overturned the slave trade and Christians who, who set about righting a lot of the wrongs in the world up to the present time, and we'll get into this next week with the Good Samaritan story, but the message of Christ and Him crucified that's at the core of what we do, when the motivation gets too much about us, this gets inevitably turned around. And what Jesus says here in the rest of the passage is that we're receivers. Verse 21 He rejoices in the Holy Spirit and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, this is your gracious will. In other words, you hide these things from the wise in their own eyes, the impressed with themselves, and you give it to those who know they're not wise, who know they're not good. It's not us who God needs. It's we who need God. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. This is the authority. When he says the authority in verse 9, it connects to verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. That's joy. He's saying that with joy. That's the context. There's a smile on this God-man's face, when he looks at these guys, blessed are the eyes that get to see what you're seeing right now. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What's the desire? Is it about the power? No. The prophets especially, and kings too, they were very familiar with power. It's not about the power, but the personal presence of God. That's what the ones in the past longed for. But we got. 
You get to see God in flesh, Jesus says to his disciples there in verse 23. And and yet these aren't our eyes. I mean, Peter, one of those disciples who heard Jesus say that, says to us later in his letter, though you have not seen him, you love him. Why? It's not about what our eyes see. It's about where our names go. Our names written down in the residence of God. You know what that means? That means you're going to get to that place and you're not going to be weighed to see if you're in, conditioned upon whether or not you've been successful enough for him. No, that's how other religions come at this. We're in because of Christ's success on our behalf. That's why you rejoice, because it's already done. Not because it's being unfolded. This is the bullseye in the gospel. We move into the harvest, not to gain his acceptance, but to enjoy it there. That we get to work for him, that we get to bear his name, even when that's difficult. And in one of those ways that only makes sense to people who've been there, especially when that's difficult. Whether doors open to you or not, whether people rejoice over you and celebrate you or not, reject you or receive you, are impressed by you or wonder, how did you get to be part of that? One door has been opened to you. One name is on you. And it's more than enough for us. It's everything. Everything. It's everything. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. And we'll sing and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for teaching us in your word through these 72 about the message about the motivation. Lord, thank you for taking care of our ultimate needs so that we don't have to fear walking out into the field and what we find there. Our lives, Lord, are precious to you. And we thank you for that. And as we move about in our world, wherever we go, whatever we're doing, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hands and feet to apply mouths to speak to the redeeming grace and truth of our Savior who embodied both perfectly. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us full of grace and truth. Help us to abide in that tension. We'll always be learning. We'll never get it perfectly right, even on our successful runs. But Lord, especially then, keep us mindful especially when we're doing well. Keep us mindful of where we root and tether and tie and base our joy on what you've accomplished for us in Christ's name. Amen.